Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's children said, Amen. It's probably at some point in time in our early lives that we wanted to get rich fast. Or if you were into rock and roll, you wanted to play a a wicked guitar without even practicing. You wanted to marry the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man in the world. Maybe you wanted to write. Maybe you wanted to be a best-selling author. You might be able to do all those things and more on your own, but you also might be able to do it if you make a deal with the devil. If you don't know how to do that, check out the article on the subject at the website called Lifehacker. Here are a couple of quick steps that they offer for making a deal with the devil. First, enter a church. Then deny Christ, his faith, his baptism, and the whole church. And they say, at some point, possibly right after you do that, the Lord of all evil may or may not appear at that time. Then they say, congratulations, you've just sold your soul to the devil. It doesn't sound very attractive. In our quick-fix culture, most people are looking for the easy way for the easy life, especially if the personal cost is extremely low. One way of getting whatever you want comes with an attractive payment plan, nothing up front but everything paid in full on your death. The price? Only your immortal and eternal soul, which, if you're really looking for the quick-fix solution to fame and fortune, you're probably not using it anyway. If you're interested, apply at midnight at the most remote crossroads in our area. Just ask for Satan. We know the history is full of legends of people who have made such a deal with the devil. The character of the classic German play made by Goth character's name is Faust, exchanged his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures, which brought about the term Faustian bargain. And it's actually the question that we've asked sometimes of some people, it's a Faustian bargain to deal with the devil, and was the rapid rise of that person to fame and fortune due to a bargain they made with the devil, who didn't seem to pay their own dues and diligence and hard work. Musicians are especially associated with the Faustian bargain. Niccolo Paganini, the late 18th and early 19th century violinist, who many still believe was the greatest violinist to ever live, played the violin with such force and so fast that one Vienna concert goer swore to the people around him that he saw the devil helping Paganini play the violin. The violinist's fiercely difficult works led others to believe that he was the son of the devil himself. Two legendary early 20th century Mississippi Delta guitarists, Tommy Johnson and Robert Johnson, no relation, are likewise associated with making a deal with the devil down at the crossroads, exchanging their souls for a wicked good ability to play the blues. It's not just musicians and scholars who've historically made deals with the devil, however, clergy have been historically been tempted to strike a bargain as well. Long before Faust in the 6th century, one Christian wrote of a cleric named Theophilus, 
who was being disappointed in the advancement of his career because of a meddling bishop. He sold his soul to the devil so he could become a bishop himself. Years later, fearful for his soul, he prayed to the Virgin Mary for forgiveness and got a reprieve. But there's one most famous story of all, an even older story, of the one to whom the devil offered multiple deals, all of which were turned down. And of course, if anyone had a reason to take those deals, it was Jesus. He knew what he was facing, a horrifyingly painful death. If he kept doing and saying the things he'd been doing and saying around Judea and Jerusalem, certainly he was facing that. If a deal with the devil was about skipping the hard parts, Jesus understood that his life was nothing but difficult parts that he needed to go through. He wasn't going to skip them. I mean, Matthew opens up this chapter in 16 with Jesus and the disciples coming to, again, the district of Caesarea Philippi. And as I mentioned last week, this is a significant place for the, all of this to happen. Caesarea Philippi, of course, renamed, was formerly known as Panaeus, which was at the foot of Mount Hermon. And last week, I mentioned that Panaeus was known as the location of the cave of the Greek god Pan. The cave was known for its massive springs of water which fed the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, which also led pagan worshipers to believe that it was the entrance to Hades, the underworld or the realm of the dead. If you remember last week about Peter declaring Jesus Messiah, Jesus said he would build the church on Peter and the gates of Hades or the underworld would not overcome it. They would have known the history of Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus said that to Peter, he did it in front of that cave, we believe. The pagan worship of Pan that took place at Pan's statue and shrine at the cave involved bizarre rituals. So good Jews wouldn't go near the place. And yet Jesus seems to have taken them to that region for that reason. Even though they may have only been in the vicinity of this den of iniquity, if you want to call it that, Jesus uses this place to question his disciples about the perceptions of him that were out there. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Both questions designed to help the disciples define Jesus' identity all in the midst of Caesarea Philippi, of a, of a word full of competing gods and people claiming divine nature. As we know, Simon Peter got it right. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Again, in the shadow, he said that in the shadow of the pagan shrine and the Roman temple. There he declared that Jesus is the direct agent of the one true and living God, the only one to be worshipped. Jesus, of course, blesses Simon Peter's declaration and renames him Peter, the rock upon which Jesus' church will be built. A church that will always seem to be butting up against the underworld, against the gates of Hades, and the specter of evil that binds people to sin and death. Peter will hold those keys to the kingdom, and not as a gatekeeper to heaven, 
but as the one who takes up the earthly authority of Jesus to bind and to loose in Jesus' name. Through the teaching and the leadership of Peter and the rest of the disciples, they will do that together. In other words, Jesus was handing Peter a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous burden all at the same time to carry on Jesus' own ministry and doing battle with the forces of evil, which we often represent by the devil. Interestingly enough, when we think of the devil, we often picture him in the form of a horned creature, half man, half animal, maybe with cloven hooves, a forked tail, a pitchfork, and maybe even a cape. Have you ever seen the Greek god Pan? If you exchange the pitchfork for a flute and lose the tail, you have the perfect image of the god Pan right there at the gate of Hades. Let's remember Peter confessed Jesus as Messiah in an area formerly known as Peneus for the god Pan. And while the, the Bible doesn't try to describe physically the, the devil there near the cave of Pan, the devil certainly reared his ugly head, not from the rock of the cave, but from the rock upon which Jesus' own church was to be built. Jesus is laying out to his disciples where they'll be going and what will be happening and where he's headed toward Jerusalem and toward his death at the hands of religious authorities. Jesus will not only be bumping up against the gates of death and the realm of evil, he'll be walking right through them. Peter rightly named Jesus as the Messiah, but Jesus' understanding of the Messiah was not one of triumphant praises or throngs of followers or political power or military power. Jesus defined Messiah as one who would save his people through his own suffering and death. The easy way would have been to play on his popularity and avoid the pain, and the temptation to do so had been with Jesus for a long time. The devil had met him out there in the wilderness before all this began and offered Jesus the chance to have everything without any cost to himself. All Jesus would have to do would be to give up his mission and worship Satan and buy into the Satan agenda. Bono from the band U2 sings a song called Vertigo and in it the devil essentially offers the proposition this way. All of, this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. You might remember in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus completes the wilderness testing, Luke writes, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Could this moment in this place, at Caesarea Philippi, with all of the different gods being worshipped, all of the authorities right there, could this be the opportune time to take over Peter, to offer him a deal, fresh off his anointing as Jesus' own rock? Is this a time? I mean, Peter can't believe what he's hearing. Suffering? Being killed? Jesus, these aren't words you're supposed to associate with being the Messiah. You have an opportunity here, Jesus, and so do we. None of that works if you're dead. There's an easier way, and we'll help you find it. At that moment, Peter was standing at a crossroads. 
whether to follow Jesus or give in to the way people said the Messiah should be. He's almost ready to make a deal, but Jesus recognizes who is in front of him and recognizes the tempter in rebuking Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus has a definite road to take, and he won't make a deal with the devil to take the easy way out. And that road is the way of the cross. He goes on to say, if you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me down that road. That's the only deal that a disciple can make. Focus on saving your own life and making it easier, you'll lose in the end. Focus on giving away your life by going down that path with Jesus, carrying your cross, and you'll find real life. Not the kind that's artificial or temporarily inflated by the attractiveness of a devilish deal. Where the devil says, all this can be yours. Because Jesus reminds them and us of the price. What will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Every day we're presented with a choice about whose kingdom we're going to follow. The prophet Jeremiah writes, stand at the crossroads and look. Look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. For Jesus, that path leads us to a crossroads. Since we're near the beginning of a school year and some have started, some are looking to start, it's a great opportunity to talk about choices. Not just with our kids and our grandkids, but with each other. And so many other folks who are faced every day with a constant and loud and clear call from the culture that they or we can and should have it all. Following Jesus is not easy, but it's the only path that leads to life. Where have you been stumbling lately? Jesus called Peter a stumbling block because of what he was saying. Where have you stumbled? Where have you said something like Peter, which we're more like Peter than we care to admit? Where have you been stumbling? What offers do you need to say no to? in order to gain your soul and a soul that's modeled after following Jesus. Think about the church, too. How is the church challenging the gates of hell? What are some of the ways in which the church provides an alternative to the deals out there being offered every day to give up your soul? Jesus didn't panic when offered that deal in the wilderness, and neither should we. I know we're more like Peter than we care to admit. He did stumble that day. He stumbled before that day. He continued to stumble. But he got back up. And he eventually recovered. We should not panic either when presented with the easy way. We should not panic if we stumble, 
that God won't love us anymore. But if we do stumble, we have the forgiveness and grace from Christ to get up, to dust ourselves off, and to follow him. Through Christ and our baptism into Christ, we are empowered, according to Paul in Romans, to live a new life. A new life when Christ enters our lives and we follow him. Would you look good on a piece of wood as you carry your cross? There's a story about a young woman who was looking for new jewelry. I may have told this story before, but it's one of my favorites. She was pointing out the crosses in the display case. And she said, I want that one, the one with the little man on it. Is that how we see Jesus? The little man on the cross? We can have new life in him if we pick up our cross and carry it. And a cross is, we often say, you know, that's my cross to bear. Bearing a cross in that phrase means it's something not good. It's something I just have to deal with. Picking up a cross in the name of Jesus and following him is not just something to deal with. It's a way of living our lives in such a way that people know who we're following. So if you've stumbled... Dust yourself off. If you see somebody stumble, pick them up. And together, carry that cross. Carry it, because that cross, through it, offers life. And once we live that way and others see it, they'll know there's life in the cross too. Amen.